This is Andrew Lytton, Music Director of New York City Ballet, welcoming you to another installment of See the Music. Today, we discuss the music to the ballet, Rubies. Rubies is the middle section of a full-length, three-part ballet, George Balanchine, created in 1967, called Jewels. The first section, Emeralds, is set to music of Foray, and Diamonds, the final section, to music of Tchaikovsky. Rubies is set to the Capriccio for Piano and Orchestra by Igor Stravinsky. Originally written in 1929 as a vehicle for Stravinsky himself on the piano, this cheeky, humorous, and jazzy work works even better as a ballet than as a concert piece. The inspiring and symbiotic relationship between Balanchine and Stravinsky is nowhere more obvious and palpable than in Rubies. Balanchine clearly found brilliant choreographic ideas from his friend's music. But let's get back to the music itself. Throughout his compositional life, no one changed styles more dramatically than Stravinsky. Stravinsky's music is often divided into three periods of composition. His Russian period, 1913 to 1920, where he was greatly influenced by Russian folklore and style. Think of his Rite of Spring and Les Nos. His neoclassical period, 1920 to 1951, where Stravinsky turned towards techniques and themes from the classical period in pieces such as Apollo Musaget and Orpheus, to name two ballets written for Balanchine. And his serial period, that's spelled S-E-R-I-A-L and not the Kellogg's variety, from 1954 to 1968, from which we are the proud originators of his work, Agon. I find Stravinsky's compositional shift from his groundbreaking, history-making, Rite of Spring and the like, to his obsession with music from the classical period, to be mystifying. With Rite of Spring, he gave us one of the most famous and influential works of the 20th century. The musicologist Donald J. Grout described it as having, quote, the effect of an explosion that so scattered the elements of musical language that they could never again be put together as before. From this, it seems that Stravinsky retreated to the safe haven of the classics. But even if this seems like a retreat from the radical revolutionary that he was, he still left us with amazing and original works in his new chosen style and language. Apollo Musaget, or Apollo as we call it, the first collaboration with Balanchine, dating from 1927 to 28, and Fairy's Kiss from 1928 are both perfect examples of Stravinsky the neoclassicist. While he was writing Capriccio in 1928, he described his inspiration as being influenced, quote, by that prince of music, Carl Maria von Weber, whose genius lent itself to this manner, end quote. Weber lived from 1786 to 1826, so this is over 100 years before Stravinsky was writing, in case you've lost track of the dates with all my talking. Stravinsky's other stated influence was Mendelssohn, who lived only marginally later than Weber. Also, around the time of composing Apollo, Stravinsky became obsessed with writing for strings. So even though Capriccio has other instruments besides the solo piano, the strings are prominent with even additional solo parts for the violin, viola, cello, and bass. Now, there has often been discussion and some mirth in musical circles of how Stravinsky was obsessed with money, often contriving ways to make more. My favorite story, because it involves my hero, George Gershwin, was that the younger Gershwin allegedly asked Stravinsky if he could study with him, and Stravinsky responded by asking how much money Gershwin had made in the previous year. Upon hearing the answer, Stravinsky said, I think I should be studying with you. 
Stravinsky had written his several pieces for piano and orchestra, including a concerto, by 1928, and was supplementing his compositional income by appearing as conductor or piano soloist. The point of all this is that by 1928, Stravinsky realized that he needed to write a new piano orchestra piece for himself to perform, since he had already made the rounds with his older works. His plan worked. He got many performances, and his choice of the title Capriccio instead of Concerto helped characterize a piece that is far more intent on humor rather than traditional musical structure. We are blessed today to have our phenomenal pianist Stephen Gosling joining us to play musical examples. The first movement doesn't begin lightly. It sounds very serious. That is immediately followed by three measures where the strings play an arpeggiated D minor chord. This intro serves more as a preview of coming attractions. The whole intro repeats again and the curtain goes up. This is one of the most fun aspects of being a part of a Ruby's performance. Every show, the audience gasps at the ruby-colored set and dancers. It adds a definite frisson to the performance. The piece finally begins after the introductory music you just heard with a very jazzy, syncopated first theme that sounds like this. One of the really unique aspects of that first theme is at the very beginning, the only instruments playing are the piano soloist, of course, and the kettle drums. It's a very brilliant juxtaposition of two very different percussion instruments playing the first theme. Balanchine chooses the second theme to introduce us to the lead couple. They enter to this joyful music. episodes before the music returns to the beginning, but my favorite is this that could be right out of a classical period chamber piece. As you heard, the first theme just returned. All the material we played you returns slightly altered. Then at the end of the movement, the dramatic introduction returns with chilling results. The second movement begins with the piano playing something that could have been written by Bach 200 years earlier. angry piano is placated by a soothing lyrical line played by the winds with the oboes in the lead.
Beautiful, thank you, Stephen. Stravinsky admits that a huge influence for this movement was making the piano sound like a very ethnic Eastern European folk instrument called the cymbalum. The cymbalum is a hammered dulcimer and its sound fascinated Stravinsky. The many rapidly repeated notes and rhythmic gestures run throughout, but none more clearly than the brief solo for the piano at the end of the movement. Kiss, which is the work that immediately preceded the Criccio, is based on the music of Tchaikovsky. The first movement that Stravinsky composed of the Criccio was the third and final movement, and it too pays homage to Tchaikovsky. Stravinsky wanted to compose a work that had the wit and charm of Tchaikovsky's music without actually quoting from it. Stravinsky succeeds. Thanks to Balanchine, the third movement starts with a very tough assignment for the ballet conductor. Almost everything that Balanchine choreographed starts with the conductor giving an upbeat to the orchestra as normal and the dancers. The third movement of Ruby's is a notable exception. It starts with the principal dancer running on stage, jumping, and we have to start the orchestra while she's in the air before she lands on the second beat. The challenge is the orchestra needs an upbeat lasting approximately a second so they can come in on time in the correct tempo and all dancers jump and land at slightly different times. This is what the music sounds like. After this introductory music occurs for a second time, the movement begins in earnest with a fantastic and fun jazzy piano solo. is full of riotous and unceasing energy. Stravinsky even finds a moment to bring back the symbolum from the second movement. There is one final bow to ragtime in this passage. the whole work joyously ends in the key of G. Stephen Gosling, thank you so much for playing the musical excerpts in this podcast about rubies. One of my proudest achievements as music director of New York City Ballet was hiring you. You've been such a tremendous asset to the company and also, ironically, our rubies date at the same time. Our first rubies together was in September of 2016. Uh, I've done 23 of them with you and we're about to have the 24th to open our 75th anniversary season on the 19th of September, 2023. I was wondering, are there any particularly challenging moments technically in Capriccio you'd like to tell us about? Well, I would say not so much moments as um, 
extended sections, like the bulk of the first movement after the initial opening, there's some deceptively tricky writing. And I think some of it has to do with, Stravinsky's always doing this, that the way he'll confound your expectations in terms of pattern. You know, you're always looking for patterns to sort of hang your hat on. And just as you think you've found it, he'll break it. I think that's particularly true in the accompanying figures in the left hand. And if you combine that with some, some rather pointillistic writing, you know, there's a lot of leaping around, then you, you get a, a sort of pleasingly spiky texture out of it, but it's an extended section in which you really need to be on your toes because all kinds of little niggling things can go wrong. <laughs> can you show, give us an example? Let's see. Well, actually, let's go back to that G major bit. This accompanying figure is like, now it's different. Then he actually repeats it. Okay, now what? Same again. Now he's changed it again. Now he's gonna repeat that one. Then G, A, A, B, like, like in the first measure. And meanwhile, you've got this very jaunty right hand. It's actually not quite that fast, but. It's actually trickier than it sounds because your, lef your left hand's extended almost to its you know, maximum capacity, playing tenths, and then the right hand is doing all these constantly shifting configurations. And earlier on, I think it's just the variety of arpeggio figures that he gives you that's kind of interesting and also tricky. Let's see. I mean, does this give you any sort of insight into what he was like as a pianist? So I've never actually heard him play, I never, you know, any of his yeah. music. I, and of course, we have many examples of him conducting his music. Mm. But I know when I was working on my tribute to Oscar Peterson album, and I had to try and learn how to play these arrangements as he played them, mm -hmm. I began to somehow figure out how his brain was working. Didn't mean I could play the notes any better, but, <laughs> but I somehow felt like I was getting inside his mind. Do you feel that was, mm. is possible with Stravinsky, or is he very enigmatic to the end? To me, he's quite enigmatic to the end, because also, I think, I think I did hear a recording of him once playing the concerto for piano and winds, which I also played some years ago when I was still a student. And I remember finding it a little bit underwhelming, actually, from a pianistic perspective. And I think, stylistically, he just always liked to keep you guessing anyway. You could, you could kind of ask him about his ideas and how that would relate to him being a pianist, but he'd probably give you some really facetious answer just intended to confuse you. <laughs> There's a story that I read once in some collected book of quotations. I don't know if it's true, but about him encountering Marcel Proust after a concert and Proust asking him, if you like Beethoven and Stravinsky saying no, and Proust says, well, what about the late quartets? And he goes, ah, worst things he ever wrote. And then later admits that he only did that to mess with Proust because it was kind of trendy among intellectuals at the time to admire Beethoven's late quartets. So there are some other composers, though, whose pianism I have heard comes through in the way that they lay the music out on the page. Like Prokofiev supposedly liked to play very close to the edge of the keys, so hence all that. Uh, 
third concerto. Yeah. Ravel apparently had long thumbs, so all that stuff in Scarborough, you know. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, but bottom line, do you enjoy playing Capriccio? I do very much, yeah. There's a, there's a sort of rollicking exuberance to it that I enjoy. Exactly. And, yeah. it's, and, and again, I have such a great seat as a worker, so I can not only listen to your fantastic piano playing right in front of me, but I see the dancers. And it's just it's a fantastic experience every time. What's been your favorite ballet to play since you've been here? This is definitely one of them. I would also mention Ratmansky's voices was really fun, partly because it was so different, and also because it was kind of a bit of a merging of my two worlds, you know. I've always done a lot of contemporary stuff. I still do sometimes. And so that was like my former self and my current self collaborating on a project. <laughs> and also the fact that I had to play along with a click track was <laughs> such an advantage because my tempos are always perfect as a result. <laughs> um, so that and also another, actually another solo ballet I'd like to mention is solo piano, that is, is uh, Christopher Wilden's Polyphonia, which I know is coming back in the, in the winter, I think. And that's all set to solo pieces by Ligeti, the first one of which, Ligeti's first piano etude called Disorder, it kind of amused me when I realized I was going to have to learn it because I had avoided that piece for years. I had played a number of um, Ligeti's other etudes, some of them pretty tricky ones like The Devil's Staircase, but Disorder, I had tried looking at it and just I always ended up thinking, oh, life's too short, you know. So when I finally had to get to work on it, I really took it apart. I remember practicing slowly separate hands, which is something I don't really do at my age. But, and I also remember uh, my predecessor in the job, Cameron Grant, he had played it many times, and he was still around. And uh, one evening, all the pianists were going to go out to the Mexican place across the street. And as we're leaving the building, Cameron said, I heard you practicing some modern piece earlier. It sounded interesting. What was it? I said, that was the first piece of polyphonia. You just didn't recognize it because I was practicing it at such a damn slow tempo. <laughs> so I enjoyed the challenge of, of finally having to get to grips with this one piece that I'd always been wary of yeah it's it's interesting i mean that that certainly held true for myself as well i mentioned agon in my talk about uh, rubies about the capriccio mm. but i knew i'd have to conduct it when i got here <laughs> it's, it's like we do it every 18 months it's impossible to avoid mm. so I, I finally had to learn it and actually i love it now you know yeah, it was one uh, of those you sort of have to get over the initial fear like this is a stravinsky i just simply don't know mm -hmm. but it's really fun, and I'm really glad it's coming back in a few weeks. Is there any piece you wish somebody would choreograph? I don't know about a specific piece. There's a, there's a composer I've worked with a lot who's based down in New Zealand. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, John Sathis. He's, uh, I think, by some distance, that best-known contemporary composer. And his music has a lot of rhythmic drive and, and verve to it. He's actually written a lot of interesting piano percussion duos, his music's very accessible, you know, we would loosely put it in the downtown camp, I suppose, meaning it's, you know, it's inspired by the vernacular. And I think he would be an interesting one to check out. The, the first piece of his I ever played was when I was still at Juilliard. I was assigned this piece called Drum Dances, which is for piano and drum set. And it sounds like two jazzers, you know, really getting it on, but it's completely written out, even the drum set part, like every tiny aspect of the drum set part is written out. And it crams four movements into a very eventful 10 minutes. So I always thought you could get a lot of mileage out of a piece like that. Actually, not when I was at Juilliard, but a few years later, I did do it with uh, one of our percussionists, Pablo. Pablo oh. Riepi, yeah. 
Fantastic. So, so maybe that's the one piece of his that comes to mind, but I, I do think he's a composer well, well worth checking out anyway. Thank you. Well, yeah. I definitely will. For me, it's, it's back to Stravinsky. I, I so wish that the New York City Ballet would have a, a Petrushka and mm. even a Rite of Spring, but I think I'm going to be waiting a long time for that anyway, yeah. sadly. So the Capriccio for Piano and Orchestra is certainly Stravinsky at his most humorous, and Balanchine realized this would be the perfect middle jewel between his two completely contrasting musical choices for emeralds and diamonds. It really works, and not only gives Capriccio far greater exposure than it currently has in the concert hall, but actually elevates it to an even higher level. In closing, let us remember Stravinsky's famous words. To see Balanchine's choreography is to hear music with one's eyes. Thanks for joining us, and thanks again to Stephen Gosling for his fantastic playing and company on this podcast. Thank you.